Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Erica James is a two-time dean. Her first deanship was at Emory's Guizedo Business School from 2014 to 2020. She joined Wharton on July 1st of 2020, right in the midst of COVID. Prior to Emory, Eric was known for launching the Women's Leadership Program at Virginia's Darden School and for defining the role of Associate Dean for Diversity at Darden. As both a woman and a person of color, Eric has had many firsts and has broken many barriers in her career. While she has what some might view as an atypical academic background for a business school dean, particularly one at a financially oriented business school like Wharton, Erica is without a doubt a keen student of both leadership and academic leadership in particular. She recently published a new book on leadership titled The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before, available at the Wharton School Press. In today's podcast, we hear from Erica on her approach on a specific aspect of being an effective dean. Running a great business school requires a passionate, effective leader at the top. But of course, it also critically involves having a strong and effective dean of key administrators and leaders supporting the dean to help drive the institution and its mission forward. It's a complex challenge for sure. In this episode of Dean's Council, we learn Erica's approach to key leadership issues relating to forming effective teams, making great hires, how best to approach the thorny issue of termination, and a host of tips and advice on how deans can work to build trusting, effective organizations. In this episode of Dean's Council, we learn Erica's approach to key leadership issues relating to forming effective deans making great hires, and how best to approach the thorny issue of termination, and a host of tips and advice on how deans can work to build trusting, effective organizations. She also shares her views on the evolving landscape of DEI efforts and the changing expectations she is witnessing among students as to what they are now expecting from both their schools and their employers. Well, good afternoon. We're excited today to be with Dean Erica James of the Wharton School. Erica, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Ken and I will uh, ask you some questions, let you talk a little bit about some of your experiences with the thought that these podcasts are basically going to new deans who are about to take on their responsibility or even those who are in a role of some experience that may have encountered some speed bumps and potholes and uh, need to work their way through it. So again, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you. So you just finished a book called The Prepared Leader, and your stock and trade has been team building, both in your roles at uh, at Emory and now at Wharton. Tell us a little bit about how you go about that, how you kind of analyze the situations that you walk into and, and what you're looking for in the people that you put into those roles. I think in every setting that I've been in, one of the core tenets of how I try to approach my own leadership uh, is really around building trust. And 
So that's what I look for in my teams. But in order to have a trusty, a trusting team, I myself have to be seen as a trustworthy leader. And so I think the responsibility first is to establish my credibility as a leader, my trustworthiness, my ability and willingness to communicate openly and transparently, et cetera. And then only after I think people feel like they can trust me as their leader, do I then turn the tables and make sure that the people that I'm working with um, are also seen as trustworthy. And th there are three primary components of trust that I'm looking for. One is you know, competence. Are you capable of doing the work that is needed for the job? A uh, second one is communication. Are you transparent, open, honest, candid? And do you withhold, you know, maintain confidences when it's appropriate to maintain confidences? And then the third one is sort of what we refer to in the book as contractual based trust, which is people actually following through and doing what they say they're they're going to do, that you can depend on them. Uh, in that regard. And so that's the core of, for me, what it means to build a team, demonstrating my trustworthiness and then looking for people who demonstrate trust in those three categories. So one thing that sort of follows is just understanding the, the challenge or the balance or the tension between moving fast and not moving fast enough. And how do you, are there are there either tricks of the trade or experience that you've had in terms of being able to accelerate or bind that trust making so that you could uh, move at a pace that was uh, effective? <laughs> so really just thinking about my time starting at Wharton, which as you all know, was 2020, it was July of 2020. So the early days of the pandemic. And Wharton, by the time I got here, Wharton and all of Penn was basically already in a remote setting. And so I started not being able to meet any of my colleagues, any of my direct reports, working out of an apartment, never really having stepped foot much on campus. Uh, and so this notion of working fast and slow was really heightened for me at that point because there was an urgency to respond to all of the incoming stimuli connected to the pandemic and, and all of the decisions that needed to be made. And yet I also was a new leader with people that I had no relationship with. And so it took time to establish those relationships. And I, I recall vividly feeling very anxious about feeling the sense of urgency and needing to move quickly, but also recognizing the reality was such that there were a number of constraints that prevented that. And it it is an ebb and flow. And where there are times when you can move quickly, take advantage of those opportunities, but then also recognize that those opportunities are, all, are not always going to be there and that circumstances are such that you might have to slow down. You might have to uh, spend more time in building those relationships or nurturing those relationships or even taking a step back in the case of, you know, people leave the team for whatever reason, and you have to start over with new people coming on board. And that means you've got to onboard them and build that relationship, not only with you, but with their their colleagues. And so it is this constant going back and forth. And I've had to get comfortable with the reality of not being able to just move at the same fast clip all of the time. You know, one of the things that happens in academia so many times is a new dean comes on board or a new president comes on board and just kind of sweeps out 
the entire old team. And I personally always had a problem with that. Tell me your thoughts on that, how you would, how you go about going through building that team with some that have, you have quote unquote inherited versus others that you bring in because maybe you worked with them previously. Maybe you've heard about them, you know, sort of how you, how you meld all that together. It's such a great and important question. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think necessarily it makes sense to come in as a new leader and completely wipe the slate and, and start fresh. There may be circumstances where that's required if, you know, there are scandals and, and whatnot that you just got to clean house in that respect. But generally, that's not the case. Uh, and so I'll again give you an example starting at Wharton. Because of the timing of when I started, I didn't know what I didn't know. And we were in a situation where, you know, there were so many decisions to be made. So it didn't make sense to me that I was going to come in and completely sort of start with a whole new leadership team. But I did need to understand what skills and capabilities and experiences people were bringing to the table. And over the course of the next year or two years, as I saw more or less of what I needed, as I thought about my own leadership, then I started to make onesies and twosies changes as it made sense. But certainly not at the outset, particularly at that point, you know, the job market was very precarious. Uh, I wasn't going to come in as new dean and bring all new people in and then, you know, let go of people who had committed their, in many cases, their life to the school without having any rationale for doing so. So, but over time, you do need to surround yourself with people that you trust, that support you, that have the same kind of values and are aligned with your thinking and direction that you want to take the school. And when you find people who are on board in that way, you want to keep those. And when you find people that don't align with what you're trying to achieve, that's when I think it's time to make a change. And, and what, what do you do to help people work together and not simply uh, just for you? I mean, is, are there ways that you've been able to support sort of the, the cross relationship building and trust building? Yeah, that to me, a team is not effective if their sole purpose is to support the leader or, or in my case, the dean. But the team is really effective when they're supporting each other. And I look for examples of when that's happening and call that out. And I, I just over, you know, just before Thanksgiving, I sent a message to the team and I sort of talked to them about how proud I was both individually of what people were doing on behalf of Wharton, but also collectively what we were doing as a team. And so it's, I think, incumbent upon the leader to sort of remind each other that we are a team, uh, to provide those moments where we can come together, not only to get work done, but just to sort of be playful and, and have some downtime with each other. I I'm a big believer in hosting things at my house because I think when you bring people into your home, it's a much more intimate setting and you sort of see and experience people in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. So finding ways for us to just connect more casually. I do, you know, fun. Some might think of them as trivial things, but as one example, the first social event that I had with my leadership team, I asked everyone to share with me their favorite song. And then I made a playlist and we played the playlist over the course of the evening. And we had to guess who picked which song. And I mean, it's silly things like that. But you actually learn a lot about each other when you take the time and make the effort to, to engage them in that way. There is the 
the gossip mill, the rumor mill, whatever it may be, where people will come to you and say, so-and-so, one of your vice deans or associate deans is really thinking about this or that. And, and you know, they're going to, you almost feel like they're tattling like we did when we were little kids, but, you know, they're, they're talking about someone in your, on your team who maybe is in a backstabbing mode, maybe is thinking about leaving, maybe how much credence do you, do you hold in that kind of a conversation? So I'll give you a prime example of when that happened and uh, in another role, the parking lot to the school was pretty close to the building. And I remember walking from my car into the building, I run into a colleague who proceeds to tell me, oh, I noticed that so-and-so's car is not here today. And it wasn't here yesterday. And in fact, the last several days over the past couple of months, their car hasn't been here. So they're clearly not working. And, and it just seemed, I wasn't, I didn't know why they were telling me that. And it made me less trusting of that person than it did the, the owner of the car, right? <laughs> Because they were clearly wanting me to take away some message about a colleague. And I thought the way they went about that was really inappropriate. Uh, so, yeah, those things happen. I I hear it. I listen to it. But I wait until I have personal information for, from which I can make a judgment. I actually had one just as a side, sidebar on that. I had uh, three professors come in and tell me that they wanted me to let a department chair, to fire a department chair. And I said, why? And they said, I hate him. I said, you what? He says, I hate him. I said, no, no, no. You, you're, you're, you, you must mean you have a philosophical difference in terms of the way you approach your research, the way you approach your discipline. No, no, no. I hate him. I said, you know, I was taught that the word hate was reserved for bad guys like the Hitlers and the Saddams and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, no. Oh, no, I hate him. And, uh, and it was one of those things where I said, well, thanks thanks for sharing that, but I really just haven't seen that. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to make that change. And uh, you're going to have to live with that hate, whatever that hate is. And it was really awful. <laughs> but at least they came out. And, I mean, it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, but, it, but it's a data point, not about the person who's being hated, but to me, more about the person who's telling you, <laughs> right? Absolutely I right. So I think you have to read the fullness of the of the context when you find yourself in that. Situation. And that was one I had to watch over the years. It just as we progressed, you know, where was he going to go in terms of a situation of responsibility? Not very far. Yeah, you can't carry that one. So anyway, just had to throw that one in because you just reminded me that. Oh my god, that was a horrible one. Well, Erica, not to tell any tales out of school, but, you know, I, I know some of the people you have built a team around. And in fact, you and I recently had a conversation where I complimented you again on a second superstar person that you hired, name not to be revealed. And you said, I'm slow to, I'm sometimes slow to hire, but I'm good at it. And you weren't bragging. You were, you were telling, it's not bragging when you're telling the truth. Talk to us some about the, the hiring, and I guess the flip side is sometimes you have to move people out. Yeah. A couple of people recently have described me as bold and then referenced some of the hiring decisions that I've made because I think it has been surprising at times. Uh, but what I look for really are people, again, it just it goes back to trust in both, all three of those dimensions that have the competence that the follow through and, and can communicate uh, transparently and honestly. And 
beyond the trust, it's, you know, are they aligned with what I'm trying to achieve? And when I'm working with people who I don't feel is aligned or are trustworthy in the ways that matter to me, then it's hard for me to imagine our broader team being as effective as I would like it to be. And yeah, there are times when you have to make really hard decisions and hard calls about people. Now, keep in mind, in a university setting, there are two types of people that work here. There are the faculty and there are the staff. And when you remove a faculty, for example, from an administrative appointment, they're not losing their job, right? They still go back to the faculty. They're still making a very good living. They're still doing the work that they were brought in to do and that they most often enjoy. But it's still difficult to make the choice to remove someone from an academic leadership role. Um, But the harder choice for me is when you're removing a staff member who's not protected by tenure. And when you are removing him or her from your team, you're actually displacing their job and their potential for livelihood for a period of time. And, And that's a much harder call. So I take those decisions really, really seriously. And I, I try to think of all the to- all the options that are available before making that call. But sometimes they're inevitable and you make the call and you let people go. But yeah, there, it's it, the way that I try to sort of alleviate any of the negativity or the guilt around it is recognizing that I'm here to do what's in the best interest of the broader organization. And if that person's not contributing to what's in the best interest of the broader organization, then I'm not doing my job if I don't make some of those hard decisions. Um, So the letting go is never pleasant, but at times necessary. But the hiring is generally much more fun. I am slow at it because I I take a lot of time. I want to know the person in as many contexts and, and settings as possible. Personally, not only do I have to feel good, but I have to be sure that that person is likely to fit into the team that we're creating and that it will be, he or she will be additive to the broader culture of the team. And so far, the, that approach has worked really well in both here and when I was at Emory. Let's go back for just a second to the your, your differentiation between faculty and staff. And I think that's really important on the firing side. But on the hiring side, where you're bringing a faculty member up from being a faculty member to a department chair to an academic appointment in a in an associate dean or a vice dean role, uh, many times there's there's reticence on their part to take that role only because they don't particularly want to be the boss of their peers, A, and B, they know they're going back into the faculty when they finish that appointment, and now they're going to be ostracized because they were the boss of their peers and they made some decisions their peers didn't like. And so, therefore, you have a little bit of a challenge sometimes in – I don't know if it's convincing. I guess I'd say convincing that individual to take that role as a department department chair is a perfect example because you're elevating them to a situation where they're saying you're going to teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays at eight o'clock in the morning. And they go, well, you know, I don't really get going till noon. I need all of my classes between two and four. How do you deal with that? And because you may not always get your number one candidate to step up and do that job because they also know they have a job anyway. Like you say, they have a job. This is kind of putting them in a position of peril relative to their peers. How do you do that one? That's that's well, that almost the hiring on that side is 
way more difficult than the hiring maybe of staff, which is just being hired right into the position. Right. Yeah. You know, with the department chair as the example, I actually find that one less problematic because for the most part, most faculty know that once they reach a certain stage in their professional career, they're going to have to cycle through a term or two as department chair. So it's just a matter of when their time <laughs> comes. Um, but it, it's for positions like a deputy dean of faculty or some of the associate deans, et cetera, where, you know, they don't have to take those roles and you need them to take those roles. And what I've tried to do is help them understand, help them. First of all, I'm only looking at people who have sort of a, a commitment to the broader institution and who have somehow demonstrated a willingness and a desire to see a Wharton or a Goizueta or a Marshall or, a, you know, whatever the school is really advance. So, so that's one thing. Then I would say helping them recognize the skill that they bring that will allow us to achieve the goals of the institution. So we were looking to hire a senior vice dean for faculty and uh, for research, our research centers. And the person that we wanted immediately said, no way. That's not how I want to spend my time. I don't want to do this, et cetera. But I knew he was the perfect person for the job. Right. And I was with my deputy dean and we took this person to lunch and we started talking about all of the ways in which he would have impact on the school and the, the research trajectory of the school and being able to shape that. And that really started to resonate with him. And once we started talking about the opportunities that comes from that role, then it became, he could see himself doing that. And that was more energizing and inspiring to him than sort of positioning it as an administrative role around faculty research, right? So you have to find the language that will communicate um, something inspiring to the individual that you're most interested in uh, and help them see the bigger picture and the way sort of it's, it's like the legacy question. How do you want to leave your legacy on this institution, regardless of whether you're dean or whether you're a department chair? You have an opportunity here that's greater than the next paper that you're going to publish. And when you find the right people who resonate with that, that's a good day. So the, the other question, just as a follow-up to that, is many times we're slow to hire. That's okay. Because like you say, you're trying to really get to know them from different perspectives and how they would handle different situations. But sometimes we're very slow to fire. You know, nobody ever, uh, nobody ever accuses of firing someone too quickly, but they have accused us of firing people too slowly. How do you react to that? And what do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a painful lesson that I think everyone experiences when they're in a leadership role, where you don't want to make the hard call. And so you leave someone in place way too long. And then it just becomes more and more difficult to actually cut ties with that person. So I think it's critical. Now, and again, it sort of depends on whether it's faculty or staff, because if it's staff, they're all sorts of HR protocols that you've got to manage. And if the work hasn't been done along the way, then you, starting from that moment, you've got to put in place the different procedures to make sure that you've documented everything, that you've had the conversation, that you've given them time to change, et cetera. And that process alone could take a whole nother year, right? So, but with faculty and asking a faculty member to re be removed from an academic leadership 
position, you don't have necessarily those same constraints. And you know when something is not working. And I remember with one person that I was asking to to step down from a, a leadership position, and I had planned out that I was going to do it, you know, a few months from now because there were things we needed to put in, in place uh, that I needed his work to finish. I needed him to finish that work. But it reached a point where I just, I couldn't wait. Like it was insufferable, really. And I went in that day and I had the conversation and I said, I'm making a change and here's why. And so again, these are never easy conversations, but I just kept thinking, what is in the best interest of the institution? And if that person is not it, then as soon as possible to start the process of making a change, I think your life will be better. The team's life will be better. The work will be more effective and productive. You just have to do it. Changing directions only slightly. I think we'd be remiss not to mention uh, Sunday's business uh, uh, section of the New York Times article on the changing uh, landscape of business education with your institution prominently featured um, and really some big macro issues around DEI and uh, B, uh, social justice, ESG, you know, those uh, galactic kind of uh, social issues are also issues that your leadership is uh, instrumental in navigating. Any thoughts that you have as it relates to that? I'll just share, when I became Dean at Wharton, I think I was probably a surprising selection. Wharton, its history, its legacy has been known as a finance school. And I'm not a finance person. I don't even have an MBA, quite frankly. And so there are many reasons why people would not have assumed that I would be the next leader of Wharton. And I also started not only in the midst of the pandemic, but I also started the summer of 2020, which was when the whole country was focused on racial and social justice. And it was right after George Floyd. And so the conversation everywhere you turned was somehow connected to that. And it was also, I think, just a month or two after the CEO Business Roundtable signed its you know, latest pledge around shareholder responsibility as opposed to just stakeholder responsibility and their focus on ESG and social issues and whatnot. So the zeitgeist of when I started at Wharton, all of those things were prominently featured. And regardless of whether or not I had planned on doing any of that when I started the Wharton School, it was clear that the world was moving in a direction. And given that Wharton is such a prominent business leader, Wharton needed to, to be at the table leading in those things as well. And on the one hand, there were many stakeholders, students, faculty, alumni, who were very happy and pleased to see Wharton moving in this direction. And there were many faculty, students, and alumni who were surprised or less pleased because it, they thought it was going to take away from the legacy of Wharton being so prominent in traditional business fields like, like finance. But the reality is, um, this is such an important part of what's happening in the world and business is such a part of contributing to the world, both the good and the challenges that we've experienced, that if business schools aren't preparing the next generation of students to enter into 
organizations and to be a part of teams and to lead teams and lead organizations in these areas around social justice or around ESG, then we're not doing our job effectively. So I don't see how business schools now cannot be engaged in these topics. And we'll approach it differently. We've launched a DEI major. We've launched an ESG major. That might not be right for every school, but I believe that every business school needs to find some way to engage and be a part of these central conversations. I think you're you're absolutely right. I think it's the right way to look at it and to look at it how Wharton would do it different than another school. Um, I think each school would do it differently. There's no question about that. It's interesting. I, As you were talking, I reflected back to my own MBA some many decades ago, and there was conversation about social responsibility um, in the boardroom and, and in the, the C-suites. We talked a lot about it, but it did not have the sense of urgency that it does today. It was just part of a portfolio that you had to take in when you became the CEO of the company. And we were talked to about that and we were trained to think that way. But today, it really is, in many cases, the forefront over and above even results. And we've really got to make sure that those students understand that. So I think your approach to doing that, and like you say, a DEI or DSG major may not be the right thing, but you got to try it because if it doesn't, if, if it works great, and if it doesn't work, you just say, okay, that didn't work. Let's move on. Right. Yeah. I think the other thing that's different is that this generation of young people are fundamentally different and the expectations that they have that their um, university or their business school is going to prepare them in this regard is very high. The expectations that whatever organization they choose to intern with or get a full-time offer from, those organizations must be deeply engaged and committed to this kind of work. Otherwise, they're going to walk with their like they are very they're not afraid to take a different course of action and i think also that's why we're seeing so much more focus and interest in entrepreneurship right now is because people aren't satisfied with the kind of organizational experiences they're getting out of the traditional firms so they're starting their own yeah i think i think you're absolutely right and i really appreciate the fact that we got into this discussion um, because it is so so important and and as you said ken that it was in the article, the big article in the Times, and it really is something that every dean's got to think about and talk about. Can't can't shy away from it. Not now. Can't at all. So I'm glad we talked about this. And anyway, Erica, I want to thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. This time went fast. We, we went really fast. And we, we could have gone on for a few more hours, but uh you got you got a school to run and uh, we're gonna let you take it from there. So uh Thank you very, very much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Good to talk to you all. So, Ken, what did you think of of our conversation with Erica? Well, she's really quite special. I mean, it's really remarkable how uh, well-versed she is, but she brings a kind of grace and appreciation and humility um, so you almost don't know how bold and um, uh, precise she can be. I thought it was a great conversation. I thought she unpacked for us, you know, some of the both the tools and the thinking behind the tools of uh, of team building. Uh, the discussion around building trust was, you know, 
she could write a book on it. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah, I thought I thought she did a great job also of kind of analyzing herself when she talked about the fact that she was a, brought in as a dean without an MBA that understands discounted cash flow and net present value, et cetera, et cetera, into a school that has been famous for its financial discipline. And and she to know her strengths and her weaknesses right there, that was a weakness she acknowledged. I don't know that. Yet her strength is team building and putting people together and letting them run at the pace they need to run at to do what they have to do to build the school's legacy. And I thought that was just really well said by her that we all need to, to recognize is to be honest with ourselves as to what we're good at and what we're not so good at. I also noted in a couple of her descriptions that she, that she really has that knack for what I call uh, embarrassing people with acknowledgement, where she actually can pay attention to the things that other people have done and sometimes bring it out in public so that it's a, it's a sincere kind of um, acknowledgement that makes people feel good and frankly builds loyalty to, to her. So it's a, it's a very nice quality. Yes, I totally agree with that. She's that, that building of trust is really, really important. And uh, I'm glad she really focused in on that. And she started out with that because it is hard when you're a new Dean coming in for people to look at you and trust you because they think that you're in there to slice and dice and, chop up the entire organization and put your own people in place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she acknowledged that's not the case. And that was good. No, very, very well done. I'm good lessons learned there. So appreciate the fact she did so well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.